0: Al Jazeera Podcast. You leave her be! She is a human being, you hear me? Leave her be! If you speak like that again, you're going to get this! You just try, you bloody bastard! I am Nomzamo Winifred Zanyiwe Madikizela Mandela. Most of the world knows me today as Winnie Mandela. In my country, South Africa, many call me Mama Mamawetu, but at this moment, I am known as prisoner 132369.
1: An hour's drive north of Johannesburg sits the Pretoria Central Prison. Its collection of torture chambers and isolation cells are part of the security apparatus that propped up apartheid in South Africa, one of the most racist governments in the 20th century.
0: My tiny cell was right next door to the torture chamber, a design to keep me isolated from my friends, but still intimate with their suffering. The government kept the lights on 24-7. Without the cycle of day and night, I lost track of time. I spent 491 days in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement changes a person. It kills the soul. It's designed to do that. I'd lose myself in memories to fill the long and empty endless hours by reconstructing the story of my life in my mind.
1: Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous would say? If you ask them for their side of the story, well, here's your chance. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. This dramatized series based on historical events resurrects some of the world's most notable figures. In this episode, we meet Winnie madikizela Mandela. As she's already told you, she's known by many names, we're going to call her Winnie. Here in 1970, she is known as the activist wife of South Africa freedom fighter, Nelson Mandela. But in hindsight, she was more than that. By the time Winnie died in 2018, she wore many labels, freedom fighter and fraudster, mother of the nation, loose cannon and loose woman, child murderer. How many of those labels did she really deserve? The story of Winnie's life begins in a district called Pondolam, nearly 900 kilometers away from the prison in Pretoria in what is now known as the Eastern Cape at the bottom of the African continent. Hindsight, you've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them.
0: I was born on September 26, 1936, in the town of Bizana. I was the fifth daughter of parents' desperate for a son. My mother was a religious fanatic. She also had a fierce temper, but I loved her very much, even when she beat me. I was willful, hard to control. I suppose I never grew out of that. (laughs) Mother had a sixth baby, then a seventh and an ith after me, all girls. Back then, my life was all about my sisters, my mother, and me.
1: And the brood fought frequently. Middle child Winnie battled for supremacy. Her temper could get so out of control that once she fashioned a weapon out of a tin can and nail and ripped open her sister's lip.
0: I got the biggest beating from my mother that day. I guess I deserved it. And then everything changed when I was seven. (coughs) Tuberculosis came to our house. First, my elder sister got it. It killed her so quickly. I'll never forget standing behind my father, watching as he covered her body with a sheet. There was so much blood. And then my mother got sick. (coughs) Father spent all our money on treatments trying to cure her. It just made us poor. She died a year later, not before giving birth to that long-awaited son.
1: It fell on Winnie to take care of her brother.
0: Don't worry, little one. I miss her too. I longed for my mother my whole life. I always kept a picture of her at my bedside. It was one of those photos taken in a portrait studio. She wore a blouse pinned with a cameo brooch. Mother was striking, high cheekbones, full lips with almost red hair and blue eyes. My dad's mother hated her looks. Ah, never let her forget that she looked white. I am descendant from Zosa royalty, an ancient African culture on my father's side. We were aristocrats, really but the colonists just saw us as black savages. Father was the local school principal in Pondoland and didn't make much money. By the time my mother died, he couldn't even afford to hire a herd boy to take care of our goats and cattle. That job fell to me too. I think my father must have seen a strength in me. That's why he asked so much of me, but heading was embarrassing. No other girls in the village had to do it. So what if I'm a girl herding goats? You're just jealous because I'm better at it than you are. Want me to show you that I'm better at sticks too? Stick fighting's a martial art that my people practice. Two opponents, two sticks, and no armor. And boy, was I good. Take that, and that, and that! He's down. Anyone else? I didn't think so. I felt so free when I was a child. I had every reason to believe that our village and the beautiful rolling green hills that stretched all the way to the sea was my land. I felt so grounded standing on that earth, so proud of my South Africa. But then... Slowly, I learned that my own country didn't belong to me at all. One of those wake-up calls came when I was nine. We went to the town hall where people were celebrating the end of the Second World War. God save the king. God save the king? I had no idea then who they were singing about. They certainly weren't singing about my king, Zwedelemile of De Sosa. But I was about to learn I had another king, and he had his favoured subjects. No natives, whites only.
1: You'll hear that voice throughout this story. It represents the racist environment into which Winnie was born.
0: I was so confused when he said that. Why did these whites think they were better than us? In my mind, we were all human beings.
1: A small white minority ruled 1940s South Africa which was still a British colony. There were some Anglophones, descendants of predominantly British colonists. And then there were the Afrikaners, descendants of the Dutch East India Company's original 17th century settlers. They had their own culture and spoke their own language, a Dutch dialect called Afrikaans. Centuries of discriminatory laws passed by both white communities dispossessed the original black inhabitants and any say in the ruling
0: of it. In school, my father taught our class about how this Osa fought nine wars against the Europeans after they arrived in the late 1700s. He said that even after they took our land, we kept fighting for our rights. God Bless Africa is one of the most famous liberation songs. I think a lot of us children thought to ourselves, I will pick up where those nine Zosa Wars left off and get my land back for myself.
1: But the fight for freedom was about to get much more difficult. In 1948, the government adopted apartheid as an official policy. Racial segregation was already in practice, especially in schools and government. But with apartheid, the government enforced it with the passion of a convert. New apartheid laws dictated where the races could live and work. According to them, that was white, black, and so-called colored people who were mixed race, and the South Asians. The hated pass laws controlled their movements.
0: My father had to get a pass just to go into town. The government didn't want non-whites to move freely. They wanted us for our labor, nothing more. The black schools didn't get nearly as much money as the white schools, but we still had the same curriculum in the 1940s. I learned languages, math, and science just as much as any white child my age, all the way through high school. It was a different story for the generations who came after. In
1: 1953, the same year when he graduated from high school, the apartheid government introduced Bantu Education. It was tailored to train black South African children for manual labor. Anything more than basic academics was discouraged. In
0: 1953, I moved to Johannesburg. Oh, it was exciting. The city was bursting with cafes, music stores, and all the shopping. I always liked a bit of fashion. In those days, my look was very 1950s Western. Soft feminine looks and everything nipped in at the waist. But Johannesburg also represented my first real experience with apartheid on a daily basis. The race laws stated that I couldn't live where I pleased. But since I was studying at the Jan Hofme School of Social Work, I was allowed to stay in a hostel. I met Adelaide in those early days in Johannesburg. She was older than me, a trained nurse. I was born an hour south of here. But the government moved us all out in the last few years. You mean your family? I mean everyone. All 10,000 of us. That's what they do. Move us if we get too close to the whites.
1: All the way through the 1950s, the apartheid government enacted laws that reinforced racial segregation. Non-whites were banned from living in cities and forced into what are called townships. Just far enough so that they could work for whites, but not so close that they could be considered neighbors.
0: Adelaide's story got me interested in the townships around Johannesburg, especially Soweto. (laughs) Services there were shocking. You were lucky if you were within short walking distance of a water tap. It made me realize how important social work was. After I graduated from college, I started working at the Baragwanath Hospital in Soweto when I was 19. I was the first black woman in South Africa to hold such a position, which meant I often ran up against the white employers of my black clients. I don't care if the bosses are upset. The doctor's orders are that he stays home for three weeks. I am the social worker on this case. The decision stands. You could get into a lot of trouble for standing up to white people. But I had no problem defying white authority, even the security forces. Especially the security forces.
1: You, Black, are you supposed to be here? Show me
0: your pass card. What about you? Are you supposed to be here? Where is your pass card? I got away with behavior like that more often than you might think. I'm not sure why, except perhaps it puts most people off guard. Most Africans are more polite than I am. (laughs) Today, you might say it was my way of fighting against the normalization of apartheid. Even Adelaide was impressed, and she was a member of the African National Congress.
1: The African National Congress, or the ANC, got its start in 1912 with the aim of fighting for the rights of black South Africans. Today, it's the ruling party in South Africa. In the 1950s, it was a growing activist movement that encompassed all non-whites and included a man named Nelson Mandela. But he comes in later.
0: I started going to ANC meetings. which would always start and end with a song. By that time, the ANC's goal was full democracy for all the races. It's in the Freedom Charter of 1955. The ideas came from everyone. The ANC, the Communist Party and all the racial groups, including the small numbers of whites in the movement. My father's history lessons helped me understand the relationship between South Africa's black and white people. My experiences in Soweto helped me understand the problems of apartheid, and the ANC helped me understand how to put pressure on the government by making apartheid laws as hard as possible to enforce. I had become an activist and a woman, but it was just the beginning of my becoming.
1: Winnie was now part of one of the most dramatic struggles for freedom of the 20th century, but bitter, lonely, violent days were ahead. Those would shape who she became, as would love.
0: I met Nelson Mandela around 1957. He asked me out straight away, but it wasn't a particularly romantic courtship. In fact, I don't think we ever enjoyed an entirely private evening together. Wherever we went, it was the same. I found out he wanted to marry me when he pointed out a dress shop that he thought would be a good place for me to get my wedding dress. He just assumed I'd say yes. My father wasn't sure about him or our politics, but we had his blessing. I didn't see a lot of my father after that,
1: though. Nelson Mandela wasn't ideal husband material. He was 18 years her senior and already married with three children, but they were both smitten. So Nelson divorced his wife and married Winnie in 1958. She was 22 years old. Winnie's friend Adelaide also got married to Oliver Tambo, Nelson Mandela's closest friend. These friends faced a formidable new foe in government when Hendrik Favort, otherwise known as the chief architect of the apartheid policy, became prime minister.
0: We had a song for him. The words translate to, here come the black people, beware, vervod. People will sing it right in front of their white bosses, who had no idea, of course, what it all meant.
1: Someone in the apartheid government must have figured it out, though. The songwriter, Vui Salmini, was hanged for his songs. The story goes that he sang them as he walked to the gallows.
0: After we married, Nelson and I moved to a little home in my beloved Soweto. Our daughter Zenani was born there in 1959 and Zinziwa in 1960. We called her Zinzi for short. But our sweet girls didn't get much family time. Like all of us activists, their father and I were in and out of custody for breaking apartheid laws. Our children came second. The struggle always came first.
1: And now that Winnie was a Mandela, the security forces started to come for her.
0: What do you want? My husband isn't here. We're here for you, Winnie Mandela. How dare you? My babies are here. Nelson used to worry about my boldness when dealing with security forces. He called me undisciplined. (laughs) Nelson and I were on the same page on most things. Back then, we believed peaceful disobedience would force the government to negotiate, force a democracy for all Africans. Then, Sharpeville happened.
1: In March of 1960, police fired into a crowd of more than 5,000 peaceful protesters in the black township of Sharpeville, outside Johannesburg. Sixty-nine unarmed protesters were killed. Many of them were shot in the back. The message couldn't have been clearer. The apartheid government had no interest in talking. The next month, they banned the ANC.
0: Nelson went underground. The girls and I only saw him when the ANC could arrange for a secret visit at a safe house. I always waited for that sacred knock in the middle of the night. We felt crushed. We all knew it was time for new tactics. It was time for violence.
1: In December 1961, the ANC launched its armed resistance wing Umkhonto with Sizwe, the Spear of the Nation, or MK for short. Over the course of the next few months, they sabotaged power grids and attacked military installations across the country. Anything to undermine the government.
0: I barely saw Nelson after that. I would only hear about how he traveled all over Africa for military training, advice, and to rally support. He became the most wanted man in South Africa. And then they caught him in 1962. While he was on a secret trip home, the police were tipped off.
1: Winnie believed a collaborator, as they were called, was behind her husband's capture. A suspicion began to take root in Winnie and others in the movement. A suspicion that would one day morph into horror in the townships. But that comes much later. We'll be back after this break.
0: We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips where we're one-click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Mandela was charged with sabotage, conspiracy to overthrow the government by revolution, and assisting an armed invasion of South Africa by foreign troops. He and eight others were sent to Robben Island prison and put to hard labor. The government called them all Dangerous Communists, a dangerous label in Cold War 1960s. Many more ANC members that Winnie knew went into exile, including her friends Oliver and Adelaide Tambo. They settled in London, where they raised awareness and funds for the struggle. The movement was down, but not out. But those who were left behind were afraid. Many people gathered secretly in churches and homes in support of the anti-apartheid movement. But security forces were quick to snuff out public protest. Leaders left on the ground... Was subject to intense police harassment, especially Winnie.
0: They'd come almost every day, sometimes several times a day. Stand aside. The apartheid security police were a special breed. These are the people who taught me to hate. I was always under one custody order or another. So because of that, I missed a lot of work and ended up losing my job at the hospital. In a way, I lost my girls too. The harassment got so bad, I had to send them away to boarding school in Swaziland.
1: Winnie spent much of her 30s in and out of prison for her ANC affiliation and activism. Getting permission to visit her husband in prison and trying to spend as much time as possible with her daughters. All the while, the apartheid government imposed new segregation laws. Some black South Africans went along with each one, even entering into political deals with the government in their own district. But one new rule in 1976 proved to be a step too far for most black South Africans. It required that all secondary education be carried out in Afrikaans.
0: I was in prison when they enforced that rule. And when I got out, I knew I was walking into a tinderbox in Soweto.
1: On June 16, 1976, the fear barrier that had been in place since Sharpeville came down. In the first two weeks of the Soweto uprising, 176 people died, most of them students. The census couldn't keep a lid on it. The pictures of young protesters dying in the street in their school uniforms touched off something inside many South Africans. This could not stand. More people signed up for the MK's training camps. Student groups organized rallies and boycotts, and the trade unions increased the pressure too, engineering large and destructive labor actions.
0: After the riots, I was ready to keep fighting, to keep organizing. The movement had momentum. The youth needed a mother, a leader.
1: But in 1977, the government had other plans for Winnie.
0: You are under arrest. Oh yeah? Where are you taking me? My youngest daughter is home from school, so I can... Hey! Get your hands off me! The government blamed me for inciting the Soweto uprising. Can you believe it? I thought they were sending me to jail again, but they sent me somewhere that ended up being far worse. They threw me and my daughter and all of our belongings into a truck and drove off. I couldn't understand what was happening at first and then it dawned on me. I was being banished. It was a long drive to the dusty, all white town of Brentford. They dumped us in the small black township nearby. us here? Where's the lights? We have no water. How dare you put us here? Zinzi and I curled up together on a beer mattress to help keep each other warm against the night chill. That was the worst part. They hadn't just done this to me, but to my 16-year-old girl. I'd been outraged for years, but now the bitterness was setting in. In the morning, Zinzi and I set up house to try and make it as comfortable as possible under the circumstances. I had to get a permit to go anywhere, even to go to church. And there were always security forces watching me. They told my neighbors I was a dangerous communist. But in time, I got to know everyone and their problems. People were starving. Most families were living on one meal of porridge a day. Almost every week, there would be a funeral for a young child who'd died of malnutrition. So, I got my hands on seeds and helped families start their own gardens. Then we set up a creche. Okay, time for lunch. Today we have bread and milk. It took years, but I was slowly able to make a difference. With the help from friends and the charity of a kind farmer in the area, over time there were fewer funerals with little coffins. In
1: 1983, a united front of churches, civic associations, trade unions, student organizations and even sports clubs came together with one common goal, end apartheid. It was called the United Democratic Front, or the UDF. Students boycotted schools. Unions kept workers away from white-owned factories. Communities organized strikes against rent increases. And the youth went on what was called stay-at-homes, rolling mass actions challenging the police in the townships.
0: We saw nothing like that in Brentford, but we heard about it. It was so hard to be away from it all. And I struggled with health problems too. I held on to Zinzi for as long as I could. I wanted her company. But we knew there was no life for her in Brentford. It was best for her to return to Soweto. Brentford didn't break me like the government wanted it to. But it did make me angrier than I ever thought possible.
1: At the same time, the government offered to release Nelson Mandela from prison, with one condition renounce the armed struggle. He wrote his response to the people of South Africa. Zinzi Mandela read it at a rally in Soweto on February 10,
0: 1985. Your freedom and mine cannot be separated. I will return.
1: Oliver Tambo followed up with a call on Radio Freedom to all the people of South Africa. He told them, make the country ungovernable. After nearly 30 years, South Africa's anti-apartheid movement was now a nationwide uprising.
0: The government finally let me go in 1986. When I returned to Soweto, it felt like war. I was 50 years old, and I was ready. I even dressed the part. I wore fatigues and a beret a lot of the time. Security forces were everywhere, arresting, shooting, and beating. They'd always been armed to the teeth, and now they had the Caspier.
1: The Caspiers were huge armored vehicles that could cut right through a crowd. But people had lost all fear and attacked with whatever they had. <laughs> This was the era of the Toy a protest dance which usually begins with stamping of the feet, spontaneous chants and slogans. It became synonymous with South Africa's township protests.
0: The young Comrades Warrior dance shook the ground more than a Caspier ever could. If the government wouldn't liberate this country, we were going to burn it to the ground. I was protesting every day and every night. I organized rallies and attended every funeral. I can still feel the weight of those coffins on my shoulder. I was both the leader of the local ANC chapter and an operative for the MK. I also founded the Mandela United Football Club. I opened my house to these young men,
1: and in ten, they protected me.
0: We all kept our ears and eyes
1: open for collaborators. The football club never played football. Their job was Winnie's security detail. Soweto had become a dangerous place during Winnie's banishment. The club's sport was vigilantism. Across the townships, groups like them carried out mob justice against suspected collaborators. There were no trials. The sentence was usually execution, often by a technique called necklacing. (laughs) Necklacing was a sight that's hard to forget. The mob would force a tire drenched with petrol over the head and shoulders of the accused and set it on fire. It sent a clear signal. Collaboration with the government equals a painful, Horrific death.
0: Together, hand in hand, with our boxes of matches and our necklaces, we shall liberate this country.
1: Many say Winnie could have stopped the necklacing. Instead, she encouraged it, even though many of the so-called collaborators were innocent.
0: A delayed. How wonderful to hear from you. How did you get through? What's that? delayed. I don't care if it looks bad. These collaborators need to be stopped. Yes, I know some of them are really young.
1: People in Soweto began to turn against Winnie and her so-called football club. Someone even set fire to her home in 1987. By 1989, leaders of the United Democratic Front and the Congress of South African Trade Unions blamed Winnie for her gang's reign of terror and called on activists to shun her. The ANC leaders, including Mandela, were also critical.
0: (sighs) We were in the middle of a revolution. These collaborators had to be dealt with. What does the leadership think we should do with the collaborators? Just leave it? The leadership is the cream of the crop. They are the best of us, but they don't leave this. Mandela himself was caught because of a collaborator. The collaborators are the enemy. I never told anyone to kill a child, but I will say this. I didn't always trust the right people.
1: When the body of a 14-year-old revolutionary, Stompe Sipe, was found near Winnie's house in January 1989, Winnie and the football club were the prime suspects. Anger against her rose all that year. But an even bigger story was about to overshadow all that. In 1990, the apartheid government, seeing it could no longer govern, agreed to lift the ban on the ANC and let Nelson Mandela go after 27 years in prison. They had won. But victory wouldn't be so sweet for Winnie. More on that after the break. The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define
0: major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to Play the News by Al Jazeera, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Welcome back. He walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon.
0: When Nelson walked out of prison in February 1990, my place was right by his side. We walked hand in hand through the gates. I raised my other hand in a fist the sign of our struggle. Nelson raised his arm too, but I couldn't help but notice his gesture was more of a salute. That nuance in our body language reminded me of my reputation as a loose cannon among the ANC leadership. Did they really think I ordered the murder of a child? Did Nelson? I had this pit in my stomach as he let go of my hand to get into the car. It felt in that moment that this wasn't only the beginning of the end of apartheid, but also our marriage.
1: The next few months were a whirl for the movement and for Mandela and Winnie. Travel, media obligations and speeches dominated their everyday. Mandela had national affairs to settle, in particular bringing all the different factions together to sign the National Peace Accord to end ongoing political violence in the country.
0: We still didn't have much of a married life. As always, the struggle came first. But when he made me the ANC's head of social welfare, I took it as a sign of love and loyalty, but I knew people were in his ear telling him that I was a liability. In
1: 1991, Winnie faced charges in the death of Stompy Sepe and three other missing young activists. She was found guilty of kidnapping. In 1992, word spread that she was having an affair with a young aide and had cashed government checks for him. That year, Nelson Mandela filed for divorce. Her marriage over, Winnie concentrated on being a thorn in the ANC's side. I was critical of
0: the negotiations underway at the time. I thought Nelson and the leadership were being far too concerned with appeasing the whites... We were getting political rights back, but not our land. There was no provision for black Africans to take over the wealth. How could we rule South Africa if we didn't rule the money?
1: Winnie's ideas aligned more with the radical left than with her old friends in the leadership of the ANC. They were writing her off. She was a convicted kidnapper and was developing a bad reputation for bookkeeping. Not a great look for a politician.
0: I resigned my ANC positions in the Social Welfare Department at the end of that year, 1992. But I was voted in as president of the ANC's Women's League the very next year. Adelaide Tambo was back from exile and in the League as well, but we didn't really see eye to eye anymore. All I'm asking about is to have a discussion before this project goes ahead. Ah, you and your process... That's all you learned in all those years in exile in Europe? I'm so tired of that same old line, Winnie. Everyone knows what you did for the country. But you can't just do whatever you feel like. Adelaide was no longer a friend. She led a revolt against me at the League. Eleven of them quit, calling me autocratic and undemocratic.
1: Nelson Mandela was frustrated with Winnie, too. It was around this time that she told a Soweto crowd that the new government had failed to correct the imbalances of apartheid. Mandela was reported to be at his wit's end. The transition years were plagued by political violence between factions of the movement. Thousands were dying in the conflict. He wanted to calm things down, and his ex-wife was whipping them up.
0: In South Africa, campaigning has ended for the country's first non-racial elections. Voting begins tomorrow and ends on Thursday. But I still had support. The people of Eastern Cape voted me into our first democratically elected parliament in 1994. The party leadership had no choice but to give me a position. Deputy Minister for Arts, Culture, Science and Technology. They shunned me at Nelson's inauguration though.
1: Hi. Nelson Khodesa Mandala here by sir not
0: only was i not by his side i wasn't allowed anywhere near the vip section in 1997 the lower ranks of women of the anc voted me into the leadership by a landslide despite the judgments against me i had true support at the ground level but then another insult the Truth and Reconciliation Commission.
1: The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a bit like a court set up after apartheid. High-profile South Africans oversaw the process, including South Africa's Nobel Peace Laureate, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It didn't have the power to assign guilt. It was meant instead to allow people to make amends, help the nation heal, not only from apartheid itself, but the violence that ended it. That included the necklacing of so-called collaborators. One by one, witnesses accused Winnie of ordering the lynchings. She was called to answer accusations that she was directly responsible for the deaths of innocents.
0: I don't know what you are talking about. I never knew those children. I never saw them. Maybe I should have stopped the lynchings, but it was such a difficult time. (sighs) I didn't want to give an inch at the TRC. They were all attacking me, but Archbishop Tutu spoke so finely that I felt like an apology was okay. Okay. I had good intentions, but indeed, things went horribly wrong. I am sorry for the families.
1: The Archbishop had to beg her to apologize. And even that, her apology was lukewarm. It was a miscalculation.
0: The TRC ruined any chances I had for a leadership position in the ANC. But I did manage to stay on as MP for the Eastern Cape. I was only 61 years old. I was strong. I still had energy to spend and contributions to make.
1: Conventional politics weren't really for Winnie. She barely attended the legislature in Cape Town, preferring to maintain a home base in Soweto, where she led her own projects. Time and time again through the late 1990s, the government called her out for dodgy expenditures. In 2003, she was convicted of several counts of fraud. Although the judge ruled she did not do so for personal gain, it was enough to end her political career. She quit her seat.
0: But I didn't stay out of politics. I always made a splash, even in my 70s.
1: She connected particularly strongly with a young radical in the youth wing of the ANC in 2012. Julius Malema was a strong critic of the decision to keep land appropriation out of the negotiations that ended apartheid. He ended up splitting off from the ANC and is now leader of a new party called the Economic Freedom Fighters.
0: Julius was like a son to me. He and my family brought me such joy. We thought very long and hard about doing a reality show. I also had a good time with my granddaughters and their reality show, Being Mandela. I made an appearance now and again. Such a wonderful family.
1: But there were deep divisions in the Mandela family particularly between Winnie and her stepchildren. They sniped at each other in the media and bickered behind closed doors. When Nelson Mandela died in 2013, though, they all came together to mourn.
0: He was a wonderful man. Truly. I had so little time to love him. Perhaps if I'd had time to know him better, I might have found a lot of faults, but... I never got the chance. I did find it odd that he didn't leave me anything in his will.
1: Never want to take no for an answer, Winnie went to court to claim ownership of Nelson's rural home. In his will, he left the house to his family trust, saying he wanted to preserve family unity. Winnie lost the bid.
0: Not long after my health started to go downhill, I was 81 and I knew my time was coming. Even after all those years of fighting, I still didn't know whether South Africans would ever truly be free. We had won our political freedom, but we still were at the bottom economically. The struggle goes on.
1: Winnie Mandela's funeral in April, 2018 shattered the controversy of the life it honored. The state service was preceded by a debate over whether she deserved one. Yet in his eulogy, President Cyril Ramaphosa admitted the ANC had let her down. Julius Malema said she should have been president. But her enduring popularity among ordinary people outshined the official speeches. Tens of thousands of people came. Organizers sent the overflow to a second stadium. At the end of what had been a blistering sunny day, rain fell. A sign in many African cultures of the passing of a person of great importance. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by South Podcasts. And their team is Managing Producer and Editor Tala Alisa. Director Tala Alisa. Producer and Editor Tala Halawa. Assistant Producer Basant Samhut. Associate Producer Kaula Alhamouri. Sound Design by Taysir Kabani. Assembly Sound Editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Morgan Waters. Research by Tarek Ayub. Fact checking by Rawan Samamre. Winnie Mandela is played by Rachel Adadeji. Extra male voices played by Hermanus Vermulan. Extra female voices played by Faith Mariehi. Recording by 5A Studios and TVC Soho Post Production. Additional fact checking by Al Jazeera and Stephanie Chung. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of special projects. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Asil Mansour is the manager of digital content strategy. Juan Carlos van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.